Welcome to the Road to Open Science podcast, your guide to everything open at Utrecht University and beyond. Today's guest is Alexandra Vennekens from the Raadnau Institute, who joins us to talk about what makes us, academics, tick. My name is Sikko de Knecht, and this season, again, I'm joined by my co-host Kaspar van Lissar. Kaspar, how are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you, Sikko, for having me on again, even though I changed affiliations today. Splitter! <laughs> Go ahead. Splitter, you went to a different university, man. If this podcast is released on September 1st, I just started the job as Associate Professor of Social Data Science at Tilburg University and incoming chair of Tilburg Open Science Community. Oh, wow. That's a, a very nice first pr uh, promotion you're making in your new career there. <laughs> yeah, and if you are listening and you are from Tilburg University, please join our open science community. We have cookies. <laughs> that's the, that's the, the real draw, right? The cookies. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yes, in this new season, again, we're going to keep you up to date with everything open at Utrecht University, Tilburg University and beyond. So Uh, keep your minds open and your eyes open for new episodes appearing on a slightly monthly basis, I think. And uh, today we're going to be looking more at the human aspect of open science and academia at large. Tell us more, Kaspar. So I follow Twitter relentlessly. And one of the hashtags that has been trending over the summer is hashtag leaving academia. Yeah. And for me, it was kind of confronting to see a lot of my acquaintances leaving academia and finding jobs in industry. And it also caused me to ask some soul-searching questions, such as, can I sustainably stay in academia and provide for a family? It's a difficult challenge at an assistant professor's salary. So in a different world where I wouldn't have made the cut to a social professor, I would still be struggling with that question. And Siko, do you also see in your direct environment people who are either leaving or thinking about leaving? Yeah, so I have the same problem that you have with Twitter, and this is also something that I noticed. And uh, also when I was a journalist before, this was a topic that came up quite often. And it really revolves around the questions like, how much are you willing to take for a job that you really love? And um, I am not really sure at this moment, we don't really have the facts and the figures that there's some like exodus going on, but I do see around me people in all kinds of different functions at the university and also at the ministry, people being worried about this. It's, it's getting increasingly difficult to get people for certain positions in our university. You think about teachers in informatics is very difficult, but also uh, all kinds of other support staff functions are difficult to get people in those positions. And for the academics themselves, there seems to be always this plentiful bounty of people who want to be in academia. There's a lot of PhD, uh, PhDs being trained, but actually sticking around and uh, really Wanting to do that job for the, the sacrifices you often have to make, I'm also very much doubtful that this will hold out very much longer. But yeah. again, the, the issue here is that we, we see some articles in nature and in science and we see Twitter. We put all of those things in the show notes and it, it, create, it like drives this very depressed imagery of academia, which I really hope is not true. But something in the water tells us that something is going on. Yeah, so you mentioned that we have no numbers, so I made an effort to get at least some numbers for yes. this episode. And uh, your former co-host and founder of this podcast, Sandy Fayez, invited me to join as an outsider uh, for his cohort of the Young Academy to crunch the numbers of a study they did on research funding. They basically asked 1,036 scientists how they would allocate the government budget if they had the option. And in their wisdom, they added one question that asks, are you now or have you ever thought about leaving academia? Mm. So I just tabulated those data and found that 86% of participants have ever thought about leaving academia and one in three are currently thinking about it. One in three. So that's, it sounds really high, right? It sounds especially high for a branch of work where you really make this commitment for a long-term career in this one path. Then one-third is a huge number. Yeah. So if we compare that against similar studies in different professions, uh, we find numbers as high as 73% of people thinking about leaving 
and as low as 40%. So regardless of what you think about the absolute value of 86% of participants thinking about leaving, it is certainly higher than in other professions. Wow. So I find it interesting that you phrased it as uh, making this commitment to a long-term career in academia. And in preparing for this podcast, I actually watched a video on YouTube. It's called Academia is a Cult by former (laughs) professor Karen Kelsky. And her argument is basically that academia from a very young age grooms students to believe that they have to make this long-term commitment to a system that will exploit them. And she is trying to lure people to hashtag leave yeah. academia. <laughs> I remember from my PhD times that we, I also had colleagues who compared it to the mafia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With this very specific hierarchy in which you have first have to do a, a lot of stupid menial jobs and then you become a crony and then you come up a little bit higher. Yeah, these, these they come from somewhere, don't you think? So I have two like kind of concerns about this. One is that... Um, I don't want to be part of this movement that grooms students for an exploitative career. So I always tell students, you're very smart, you're very promising, you would do well in academia, but please keep in mind, you can't expect anything back. The university doesn't make any guarantees about future employment. And the second thing is that if you combine this with the fact that there is now more emphasis on diversity and inclusion, which I really appreciate, I'm worried that promoting diversity while also uh, potentially having an exploitative career path uh, might place the burden on underrepresented and minority groups. Mm. Yeah, that would be the cut up spec bin in Dutch, the exact opposite of what you want to reach. All right. Yeah, so for today, we have a special guest, as I said at the top, Alexandra Vennekens, and she recently published a report together with her colleagues from the Ravno Institute, which is a, I think it's a biannual report on what motivates people to go into academia, but also talks about their experiences when they're in academia. But do stick around until after the interview, because we also have some good old-fashioned newsy news for you. Hi there, Alexandra. Happy to have you here. Uh, Could you perhaps introduce yourself quickly and maybe also tell us whether you consider yourself to be part of the open science movement or not? Yes, of course. Hello. Um, uh, I'm Alexandra Vennekens and I've been involved with research at the Ratzner Institute since 2015. Uh, Before that, uh, I've mainly been doing uh, policy research on um, a variety of topics And presently, I am the coordinator of the team focusing on researching the science system in the Netherlands at the Ratenau Institute. As a research coordinator at the Ratenau Institute, I have somewhat naturally become involved in open science because all the insights resulting from work of the Ratenau Institute are always published open access. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, increasingly, um, our research data are also published uh, open access, for example, through the dance repository. Uh, this can be complicated as due respect should also always be paid to privacy concerns. And that means that not all, always all the data uh, can be shared uh, because the data also needs some guidance on how it has been collected and how it can be used properly. And therefore the provision of useful data, uh, metadata is crucial. And that also takes time to provide. And what I think is maybe even more important, it's also open access uh, requires that you consider whether there might be a case where open access publication uh, of data or findings, even if the research was publicly funded, might be harmful, for example, for national security reasons. Mm. Another aspect I think that needs uh, more attention is that Open access publishing and open research data are not the only aspects of of open science. These aspects mainly benefit other scientists in the first place, but open science should actually also be about doing research that citizens consider relevant for themselves as patients or as residents or consumers or more broadly for society. 
it is also about making the insights from public research then accessible in such ways that they can also be used for the benefit of society and citizens. So therefore, the Ratner Institute is also involved in research on ways in which citizens can be engaged in scientific research in such a way that their involvement is more beneficial to both science, society, and also themselves. Yeah. And um, also here, I think it's not necessarily the case that more involvement is always better. The ways and the levels of engagement should actually always be customized to be appropriate for each different type of research and projects. So you already mentioned that one of the original studies conducted by the Rathenau Institute is um, the motivation research panel study that you conduct. And yes. you were able to give us a sneak preview of the report that should come out on the same day as this podcast, if the timing collides. So we are quite interested in this study uh, because it relates to a particular aspect of open science, namely recognition and rewards, and the way that scientists' contribution to their fields and to society at large is appreciated within the context of their work. So could you tell us a little bit more about the motivation research study? How often do you conduct this survey and how does it fit into the bigger picture of your work at Rathenau? Uh, sure. The motivations research is, is one of the surveys that, uh, that the Rathenau Institute regularly conducts. We do it about every three to four years since the first edition in, in 2013. And with the survey, we aim to find out what motivates researchers and lecturers in their work. And we look at the extent to which their ambitions align with the central goals and performance indicators of the higher education research institutes where they work and whether they, for example, experiment, experience any impediments um, to achieve their ambitions. And this provides important insights that are complementary to what we are presenting on the Rathenau website, Science and Figures. And for example, um, um, we, we show characteristics and developments of research and academic personnel uh, about their careers and working conditions. And this survey now provides insights based on researchers and lecturers' own experience of their work and working conditions. And the results are very relevant as the scientific community increasingly also demands attention to the questions of how work in this sector remains attractive um, and how researchers and, and lecturers can, can be given the space to fulfill their social mission. And in recent years, we have seen that much attention has been paid to the high workload of academic staff and also to the conditions under which they perform their work, uh, for example, science in transition. And on top of that, just like all the professional groups, they, uh, researchers and lecturers have also been affected by the corona pandemic. And what perhaps makes this uh, edition all the more relevant is that there's also been a number of initiatives uh, recently to make working in higher education and research more attractive and to make science more open to society. Uh, since 2019, we know the uh, uh, recognition and, and rewards initiative that aims to broaden the attention in, in performance assessment of academic personnel from a predominant focus on research quantity and, and numbers of scientific papers towards more attention to research quality, to teaching, student supervision, academic leadership and patient, cares, uh, patient care. And uh, it also pay, aims to pay attention to teamwork and contributions to open science. This open science is also further stimulated by the National Programme uh, for Open Science. And since September 2020, there's a national action plan for more diversity and inclusion. All these developments actually have in common that they require and uh, also aim to stimulate a change in the, in the thinking and working of uh, researchers and lecturers. And also more broadly, I think that's also necessary within the institutions where they work. So um, these changes they have, uh, or, or these initiatives, they have led us to make several uh, changes to this edition's uh, survey compared to the previous editions. For example, in line with recognize and, and reward, uh, we widened our target population to also include lecturers who may not have significant research tasks. 
and we broadened up the potential objectives that people can select from the questionnaire to include aspects of team science, teaching objectives, leadership, open science. And uh, the same we did for the performance indicators, and we included a breakdown of the results by gender and migration background. And lastly, I think we added uh, new questions on which obstacles respondents experienced that impediment the realization of their ambitions. Do you have any idea who filled out this survey? Um, well, before I, I go to, to answer this question, which I, I'm going to do based also on uh, some of the results of our uh, survey, um, I think it's important to know that our, our, our survey was completed by over 2,200 respondents, of which there was 1,200 respondents at universities and 330 respondents at the University Medical Center and 500 plus at universities of applied sciences. And the remainder of the respondents was from uh, public knowledge organizations and institutions of the Royal Academy of Science and the National Agency on Research Funding and WO. Yeah. So we'll get to the results a little bit later, but maybe also like drive back a little bit. Um, there are motivations to leave academia or perhaps not be happy in academia. And there's all kinds of initiatives being taken uh, to make this a better place to work for everybody. But what is your general view of why people actually want to work in academia? What is it that draws them in or what lures them? Uh, is that st still this mythical idea of being a free creative or are there other reasons? In our uh, motivation survey, we asked researchers and lecturers what predominantly drives them. And then nearly a third of academic uh, staff then mentioned in their top three the following. Working in an environment with high quality and inspiring people. Performing high quality research. Being able to research what I'm curious about. And doing research that is relevant for society. And fifth on that list is good working conditions. There are, however, some slight differences that we saw between the functions, which are mostly also in line with these specific functions. For example, uh, PhDs are more often um, uh, considering doing research as relevant for society as the most important objective, mm. whilst in the higher function categories of universities and uh, associate professors, student supervision is a more prominent uh, prominent ambition and for junior lecturers good working conditions are relatively often mentioned as an objective yeah. but what we found um, interesting is that for both researchers and lecturers alike research related objectives generally outweigh the education objectives yeah mm. and that might have to do also, uh, uh, I think, with the present focus on research in, in academia. You see, entry uh, into the academic career typically starts with a four-year PhD trajectory. So people that are currently attracted to an academic career are highly likely also to be driven by research. Yeah. So if you want to change this mix a little and open up and take the potential of recognition and reward and have people have different career paths, and you have to start at the very beginning, uh, at the at the PhD level. It might be a, a combination. You see what mm -hmm. what but but what what is is clear now is that that um, for example your your uh, teaching uh, basic teaching qualification is is a much um, well, well it's 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 not the same as a PhD trajectory in, in terms of size and in intensity, I think. And maybe that's not, not necessary, but for all, uh, all the people enter, entering academia nowadays, it's quite common that you first have to uh, have uh, uh, finalized a PhD trajectory. And maybe also there, uh, more diversity could perhaps be introduced if I hear you talking about these motivations of scientists, I recognize them very much. I also am curious to do research. I want to work in an inspiring team. I care about good working conditions. But I also wonder to what extent I actually experience these things in my daily life and in work. And I wonder to what extent the participants of your questionnaire 
get to fulfill these needs that they have. And that relates to the topic of this podcast, which is leaving academia. Your report did not address the motivation to leave academia directly, but it's been a discussion that's blowing up on Twitter over the summer. So it's something we wanted to discuss. Um, Reading the report, I do see some causes for concern. There's structural overwork, and there are also a lot of examples of how these needs are being blocked. For example, structurally being able to devote less time to research than agreed upon, even though this is one of the primary motivations. So if we combine that with the number we mentioned before, 86% of academics are currently thinking about leaving or have thought about leaving academia. Should we be worried? Is academia still an attractive sector to work in? Um, yeah, to, well, to, to answer your, your, your question, I think I uh, want to go back to, uh, to our research findings where we see indeed that uh, the combination of research, teaching, knowledge transfer and management tasks together places a heavy burden on researchers and lecturers. And that is indeed especially the case at the universities. And uh, what is important, it also uh, differs between the functions. But with regard to the overtime work, we do see that researchers and lecturers at all types of institutions actually regularly do that. More than 25% of the scientific staff at the universities and UMCs indicate that the actual working time is more than a quarter longer than agreed in the contract. Okay. But in comparison at the universities of uh, applied sciences, it's 15% of the researchers and lecturers that that also work uh, more than a quarter of the contract. And at the public knowledge institutes, it's 13%. So it's actually less. Also, we see that the higher position at at a a university of a university medical center, the higher the amount of overtime. So for uh, PhD students, 55% say they work overtime. And for professors, it's 91%. (laughs) 91%. Yes. And the amount of overtime also increases for higher positions. So 55% of professors indicate they work more than a quarter of their work, um, of the hours uh, over time, while 12% of the PhD students say so. So we've all seen these numbers. I'm just wondering what they mean, because I recognize the structural overwork and so do my colleagues. But if I talk about that with colleagues from industry, they are absolutely shocked. So it seems to be something that is disproportionately affecting academia and i'm just wondering whether that uh, still makes academia a feasible working environment yeah it's it's um certainly a point of of serious concern i think you also asked how people are spending their their, their time on different tasks and then we see that on average university spent a third of their time on research but the higher the position, again, the less time there is for scientists to spend on research. Yeah. Yeah. So, for example, PhD students, they spend an average of 65% of their time on research. Professors, only five, 15%. So, for context, in most people's contract, the percentage of research time is at least 50%, and 60 or 70 is more common. So, then these numbers seem to be structurally very low. It would not be problematic if people were satisfied of course with this different division of tasks than than is is stipulated in a contract but we see that uh, at the universities in in particular what we see and 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 i said so before the time that that was intended for research is actually also spent on uh, on teaching and and management tasks and the majority uh, of university academic staff indicate that they spend less time on research than they agreed yeah. or then was said in a contract. And what we see is that they spend more time than agreed on teaching and on supervising students. Yeah. And what is actually then most important is that researchers and lecturers at the universities generally are less satisfied with the time that they have for research and also for acquiring funding than staff at 
for example, the university medical centers and the universities of applied sciences. Yeah. But interestingly, this satisfaction applies much less to the PhDs and the junior lecturers, as they less often indicate that the time allocation deviates from the agreements, and they seem generally more content about their time use. They are also less likely to experience a lack of space for tasks as an obstacle to achieve their ambitions. So yeah. there is um, there are differences within academia, uh, yeah. which are often related to function. You're describing how assistant professors uh, ex- experience the most dissatisfaction and certainly the mismatch between them wanting to focus on research and them having to spend a lot of time on teaching must be part of that. But I also wonder to what extent the increased competition um, at the level of assistant professors plays a role. Of course, academia has this kind of pyramid structure. We take in many PhD candidates. There are fewer postdoc positions and assistant professorships and very few associate and full professorships. But if you have a PhD, you could conceivably find a job in industry whereas having an assistant professorship kind of means committing to an academic career path and then having to yeah take that next step afterwards what i want to ask about is it seems that all of the motivations in the study are individual but to what extent do you think that motivations related to the work climate and the social mm-hmm. environment including competition and support from leadership might play a role as well well, enough um, space to develop themselves into funding acquisition. And that probably has to do with the fact that they need to bring in funding in order to, uh, to be able to, to continue their, their research and to, to do their research projects. So, yeah, what, what, what I, I would say is that the figures that seem to indicate a need for change and broader recognition and rewards for, for example, for teaching, for supervision, performance and skills, and also for proposal writing might actually help in this regard. But that is only if people with these requirements, teaching, supervision, management, talents and ambitions to, to acquire funding can also be sufficiently attracted into the university and then get enough space to develop their careers based on these um, different parts than, than the traditional uh, one that focuses on, on research and publications only. Yeah, I think what you're also sort of getting at is that the selection in a way is not only in the work itself, but also in where you are in your life and in, in, in your career and also personally, which reminded us about this article written by Susie Zelstra, who is an ex-associate professor who worked on a four-year contract. And uh, two years ago, she wrote an article to publicly sort of denounce or break up the engagement with the university. And and I wanted to read you this quote that she put in this article saying that it has become a job to be in academia that is especially accessible to people with few caring responsibility and who are able to work a lot of overtime. A job for people who can still get by financially on part-time appointments and can stand the uncertainty of temporary contracts, which seems to be sort of a selection on something that isn't necessarily very relevant for the work itself, do you think? And and is, is this... Uh, an example, a good example of what people face right now, or is this uh, an outlier? Well, um, I don't think this is uh, just an outlier. Um, well, based on our, on our research findings, we see that almost 40% of the academic staff actually experience personal characteristics or a situation, a personal situation as an obstacle to achieve their ambitions. Whoa. And yeah. That percentage is also higher than at the public knowledge uh, organizations or uh, at universities of applied sciences, where it's about a quarter. That's still a lot. But um, <laughs> most often um, they refer in this regard to the family situation or uh, care responsibilities. And um, it also particularly affects women 
working at universities or university medical centers. Yeah. So we selected a second quote that relates to the same theme. It comes from an article from The Correspondent titled, The Scientist is No Longer Allowed to Be Human at the University. And the quote is as follows. The personal life of scientists is often seen as something that takes place entirely outside of the walls of the university. A life that, if you want to maintain your academic career, must remain invisible within the walls. I recognize this, but how do you relate this to the content of the motivation study? Yes, and in, uh, in, in other research that we have, uh, have been doing, we, uh, we also see that, especially at the lower function levels, actually after the, the, the PhD phase, that uh, a large share of, uh, of lecturers and, and researchers at universities work on, on temporary contracts. And um, this is particularly uh, an issue uh, for young people starting a, a family and also have um, family uh, responsibilities, financial responsibilities, uh, maybe want to buy a house. Um, yeah, so that, that might be another issue as well. It hasn't been the fo uh, focus of Drijfveren van Onderzoekers in our motivations research, but, uh, but it's certainly uh, a point that, that should be addressed. And I know that also the ministry is, is working on that uh, together with, uh, with the institutions, but it has to be monitored because you see that change is actually quite slow. So I think what we're basically hearing in this, in the results and in the the, the quotes from the different people we gathered, is that uh, there needs to be some regard of personal life of the academic. These people are people. That's what we are slowly finding out. And uh, a very interesting part of the, your motivation research is also looking at what the COVID pandemic did with people. A, per, a serious situation where the personal and the work environment became one environment in that same little home office or often kitchen table. And one big name that also uh, joined the Leaving Academia movement very recently was Christopher Jackson, somebody who actually gave the Christmas lectures, so, so really on the top of his scientific career. And he wrote in Nature the following, saying, Universities spun up to full speed, expected the same and more from struggling staff members, he says, who are now reassessing where their values lie. Um, yes, if I can uh, reflect on that, uh, based on our survey, then I must say we can indeed confirm that almost 60% of researchers and lecturers at the universities did experience a negative effect of the corona pandemic on their work-life balance. And um, about 20% also mentioned care tasks as a cause of delays in their work. And this was most often mentioned by teachers, postdoc researchers, and assistant professors. And this may again be related to the age at which one starts a family and has young children. And um, importantly, also women again, more often mention these care tasks as a cause of delays during the corona pandemic. Corona also caused actually major shifts in the time division between tasks and uh, that particularly uh, reduced the time for research. So it caused over 40% of researchers and lecturers also to increase the number of hours that they work. Well, yet for this last part, we should also keep in mind that the letter also occurred at, at other types of institutions. Yeah. So it seems that, that really all research institutions and higher education institutions, it happened that, that researchers and lecturers had to increase the number of hours that they worked. Yeah, but that, that's not necessarily the outcome that you need to expect, right? If there's a pandemic hitting the world and you have to keep your kids at home, you have to do all kinds of stuff you didn't have to do before, why would people actually start working more? I don't really get why that would be the outcome of this situation. Do you have any idea what the reasoning is behind this? Well, it might be that uh, that people felt that they still have to do all these same things and maybe also that they feel that they do uh, want to uh, keep up with the research uh, responsibilities. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the thing is that, that teaching tasks uh, can't really easily be delayed. So you have to prepare for that. Yeah. You have to, yeah. you have to be there. And then probably what, what people have done have done is to, 
to take on uh, or to, to work more hours so that at least they can also still do their research. Yeah. And and could it be a solution to this like built up stress to uh, to maybe now announce a period of lessening in working hours and make this a collective statement? For example, it's like it, I'm trying to find solutions for this issue. I'm not sure where to where to look for them. But would something like that actually help? You think? Oh, before uh, before one one does that, I would would certainly first of all look deeper into that, and um, I think it needs more research but most importantly before you would do that you should actually also talk to people's preferences because there's also part of uh, lecturers and, and researchers who actually decreased the hours that they worked and perhaps they now actually would like to increase that i don't mm. know so it might be different uh, for different persons and i think it should be something that needs to be really done and decided at, at the personal level. But it will be important to keep in mind, of course, uh, as someone's complete uh, entire life and not just look at all the work that needs to be done. Uh, you have to have uh, uh, the teachers or, or, uh, and lecturers and, and researchers are people with also personal lives. It's not only work. Yeah. So if I can challenge you on that a little bit because i'm a bit skeptical of course there is variability in um, the increase of amount of work and that also means that some people work less but overall the average seems to be that people were forced to work more due to circumstances and if we look at the report i think it paints a crystal clear picture i'm not of course you can repeat this study every year but the picture is very clear um a lot of researchers' needs are frustrated, they structurally overwork, and they don't get to spend the time that they agreed contractually to spend on research. And solutions have been proposed as well. For years, Veo and Axi has been arguing we structurally need a billion extra. So do we really need to do more research or should we start looking towards solutions to improve working conditions at the universities? Um, yeah, that certainly. But um, uh, I was just saying that decreasing the hours worked might not be a solution for everyone. That's mainly what I, uh, that you should uh, discuss uh, more in person. It's not something that you can just apply uh, across the board. Yeah, and at the same time, if if you increase funding, then every individual department is able to recruit more people and distribute the workload more adequately, taking into account the individual situation, of course. But to say that solving the problem is mathwerk is a, a tailored job that should be examined at the individual level, I'm, I'm not sure if that would be feasible even. Well, I would hope. Uh, I would hope so that um, <laughs> individual preferences are, are are going to be taken into account. But certainly, there is uh, now uh, more funding coming into the system. But that does not necessarily automatically mean that the problems will be solved. More will need to be done because you can also imagine that if someone, for example, uh, an associate professor. Um, wants to to have more time for research, but now there's all the work that needs to be done. And when one then hires more staff to actually help with that, and it's more junior staff, then you will still need to supervise people. So, um, yeah, I think one needs to be very much aware of these things. And, and also one needs to be aware of the pitfalls of more funding, actually, yeah, because you you need to be uh, careful that does not aggravate the problem. Yeah, you need to be sure that you're going to do almost the same amount of work with more people and not more people doing the same amount of work individually. You create a different, uh, <laughs> a very unwanted situation, perhaps. Um, maybe segue back a little bit to open science and recognition and rewards. Like one of the major promises of recognition and rewards is that working in academia is going to be a bit more fun and a bit more suited to what you want to do and what you as a team or a collective think is important and not the uh, individual impact factors driving every decision in uh, in academia. And what we were really wondering is whether people are actually 
picking up on the fact that something is changing in this culture and that there's a program like this and what people think of it. Do you have any numbers on that? Well, first of all, I think it's just it's it's not just uh, familiarity with the open science and and recognition and rewards programs as such. I think above all, it is the extent to which the principles of these programs actually come to play a role in the goals and ambitions of researchers and lecturers, and is also a real integral part of institutions, cultures, and for example, in personnel policy. And yeah, only in that way, it can also become part of, of recruitment, career paths, and performance yeah. assessment. Obviously, it will help if actually all the staff members at all levels are aware of the content of these programs and the implications for their work. And, and what are we looking at right now? Does like one in 10 people know about it or half of them? So it's about 20 to 30% for the uh, universities and uh, UMCs. And I think this, that's also the institutions where perhaps it's, it's most important and uh, is most crucial that these programs really land. Okay, 20 to 30%. Do you think that's a lot or a little, Kaspar? <laughs> I think it's quite a little if people are indeed already being evaluated according to those standards, which mm -hmm. by my yeah, understanding exactly. they should be. But having recently changed jobs myself and experiencing a different working culture from the one we know from Utrecht, I think it's not that little because I think that um, there's a little bit of latency in implementing this change at different institutions. So I think it makes sense. Yeah. So you also specifically address in this report, Alexandra, the um, distance between the personal interests of people and their own ambitions and also whether they're actually able to make that bring to fruition like what they themselves find important in the terms of recognition and reward and what their institutes think is important in recognition and rewards and what is the scope on that topic well we see at, at at this moment these traditional indicators in the field of research still play an important role at the universities And although the aim is to increasingly recognize and reward staff based on quality and less on quantity, we see that the number of peer-reviewed publications plays a greater role in the assessment than the value that scientists themselves uh, attach to it. So, but still about half of the scientists um, think it's an important performance indicator and then for over 70% of the academic staff it plays an important role in the assessment, in the actual assessment. So that makes the number of peer-reviewed uh, peer publications at the universities still the most common performance indicator. Mm. And, well, that's, that's not what, what perhaps you would expect from recognition and rewards. But, well, we also actually must acknowledge that at the time, since the launch of recognition and rewards is still fairly short um, because, as I, I said earlier, it has to be really become part of, of, of the culture and that, that does take time. Yes. It's one, one thing for people to become familiar with the programs, but it's another thing for such innovations actually to, to really become part of your uh, institutional culture. Yeah, so you do see there's a, a small, like a small initial shift already. People are getting a little bit more familiar, but the re that like the actual question is it being implemented is something that hasn't been a full yes. Um, but I'm also always wondering we are opening up the possibilities to differentiate in career paths in recognition and rewards. But uh, have you looked specifically at what wishes people have to actually develop themselves in, and and how do they differ from what we are valuing right now? Yes, there are, uh, um, well, one thing's for sure, many of the lecturers and researchers will want to develop in research. It's one of their main ambitions, as I said earlier, also they want to do more research and they also particularly want to develop in, in research. But there's also other things. For example, I mentioned earlier, people want to also become better at acquisition of funding, Some also want to improve uh, teaching or supervision of, of students. So uh, people do indicate different tasks in which they want to uh, develop. 
but they also feel that they do not always get sufficient space to actually uh, do so. Yeah. And that is not so much at the level of, say, PhDs and postdocs and more junior lecturers, but it starts actually, the dis- discrepancy starts at UDA level, yeah. uh, which is as associate professor level. Yes. Yeah, and maybe also looping back to the very beginning where you gave your definition of open science and said, like, it's, it's also more about including the public at maybe knowledge transfer. Uh, maybe just a harsh question here. Are academics actually themselves interested in doing more of that work? Is that one of their wishes or do you not find that in your research? Yeah, well, um, they do, but there is, I think, still a space also for, uh, for more of that. I think what, what we can conclude from, uh, from our survey is that there might be some changes already, but there's still quite a way to go and, and also work to be done. And I think in, in our um, next editions of uh, motivations of, of researchers and lecturers, we also keep monitoring how science evolves and how the experience of, of researchers and, and lecturers will evolve. I'm just thinking about what are some important lessons that we can take away from this report. And given that uh, 86% of academics are currently thinking of or have thought about leaving academia, this document seems to offer a lot of relevant um, handholds for making them stay. So what do you think might be the most valuable lessons in this regard to draw from the, the report? Yeah, I think that especially for as, as far as, as the match between ambitions and the work as well as the space to f- develop themselves is concerned, um, uh, the assistant professors seem to really need uh, attention. I think that's a very important uh, thing. The other thing is, is also that, uh, particularly at, uh, at the levels of permanent staff, yeah, where people are actually em- employed in permanent positions and where the, at the level of associate professors and professors, that overtime is, is, is really very high. And the combination of tasks, I think, is also one uh, aspect that makes it more difficult for for lecturers and, and researchers, especially at, at the levels where, that, where, where these tasks are really combined and also the management tasks, there you see that respondents actually struggle to, to get enough time for research, which was one of the reasons why they actually started the a career. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes. And, and, and see, there might not be uh, one solution. And there's also which I did not mention before, but there are also people who do want to do more, uh, for example, teaching tasks. And also, especially I think at, at PhD level, for example, people who want to do to develop themselves into uh, uh, teaching. So that those, those things are promising and, and it would be good if a program such as uh, recognition and, and rewards can help these people to spend more time on it, to develop themselves on it, and also to develop a career path um, in that. And at the moment, it's not obviously the majority of of respondents, but, well, it can be further developed if also um, at the start of one's uh, academic career, these things are discussable. Yeah. Those sound like very clear-cut indications of things we can change and uh, priorities that we uh, have to lay out in our universities. Also, a promise there for things to change in the future, and people are ambitious about that. I think that's a beautiful close for our interview today. Uh, Alexandra, thank you very much for being here. Maybe we'll see you around some other time, and we hope that your report gets a, a good reception in the field. Okay, thank you too for the opportunity. Thank you. Have a nice day. All right, then now it's time to get on to the newsy news. Well, something really exciting that broke today is that the White House released a new policy that will require by 2016 all federally funded research results to be freely available to the public without delay. So what does that concretely mean for scientists? That means that you can post a preprint of your published article on the day that it is released. And this is great because a lot of published articles are still behind paywalls. Um, some 
scientists can't afford the open access publishing fees associated with making something freely available. So uh, an alternative pathway is to release a preprint of the paper, uh, for example, on SciArchive or all kinds of other archive servers. There has always been this really useful website called Sherpa Romeo, where you can see whether the journal that you have published in will pursue legal action if you publish a preprint. And oh, well, for that, a lot that of journals, that sounds like a good resource. <laughs> Sherpa Romeo, check it out. But for a lot of journals, it said you need to respect a 12-month embargo period after publication before posting a preprint. This news effectively means that that embargo will go to zero. Whoa. Not so sleepy Joe after all. Not so sleepy Joe. And I also <laughs> am encouraged because a lot of this this movement towards open access publishing has really been originating in the Netherlands. And some people are worried that the Netherlands might lose their international standing by embracing open science. But this is a clear sign that what we are doing here is taken seriously in other leading countries as well. Yeah. Well, Another place where the Netherlands is taking on a big role is in Europe right now, because recently the European Research Association, or the research area, I should say, published new research assessment criteria, which are very much in line with open science. They're very much inclined towards other activities than just the good old-fashioned publishing. And uh, there's a coalition of the willing, I think now, of about 300 parties. There's universities, but even whole countries signing up to it. So uh, this is the other other big worry that people have, like we are going to be out of step with other countries, we're not going to be the same. And actually, there's big major movements underway, at least on a European level, but we see interest from all around the globe of actually aligning these things, not to be exactly the same, but to make sure that the out like the, the, the main outlines and the vision behind the research assessment is being performed in a similar manner, which is also quite promising. And maybe to draw it a little bit more to the national level, before the holidays, when we had a little break from our podcast, the policy brief on higher education and science was published, which also had a big open science and reward and recognition component. I think two things are worth mentioning today, which is for one that I think starting 2023, uh, we're going to have a national regieorgaan open science, which will be part of NWO, specifically aimed at funding the transition towards open science through all kinds of creative manners. And very recently, it was announced that Hans de Jonge, who actually worked at Utrecht University in a very past far away, uh, become the new quartermaker and uh, director of this new institute. And in a sort of similar fashion, uh, there's going to be a national center for science communication, which joins together people actually researching science communication and the practitioners, uh, also helping to move this transition where it becomes much more normal for scientists to be appreciated and valued for doing science communication. So We'll see on the 10th of October, there's a big National Science Communication Day where the first outlines of this center are going to be discussed. And of course, you'll probably, on the day of this episode airing, you'll be at the Open Science Festival at the Vrije Universiteit, where you'll hear more about the National Regie Orgaan Open Science. And that's it for today. So join us next time at the Road to Open Science podcast. See you soon. You've been listening to the Road to Open Science podcast. The Road to Open Science is an initiative from the Utrecht Young Academy and supported by the Open Science Platform at Utrecht University. This episode was edited by me, Lieven Heremans. Please subscribe to the podcast feed to stay up to date.